Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, good morning. I am so excited to be here with you all this morning, and I appreciate uh, Dr. O'Donohue inviting me to come, and I appreciate her uh, pointing out that I am a Texan because I laughed during those announcements when tomorrow is like Nacho Day. Tomorrow is also Texas Independence Day. And so um, when I think of March 2nd, that is the first thing that comes to mind for me. But I am delighted to be here this morning. I'm very honored and very humbled uh, to be here. Um, Anytime I'm able to teach God's word, I'm very thankful for that opportunity. But I also approach that with a great seriousness because I think scripture tells us to do that. So I want to open up this morning in a word of prayer and we'll get started. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us, Lord. Thank you that, Lord, you are a good father, Lord. Father, when we needed a Savior, you gave us one, Lord. And Father, it is through our Savior that we worship you this morning. And so, Father, as we have worshiped you in prayer, as we have worshiped you in song, Lord God, now we approach your word, Lord, and we worship you, Lord, as we read your holy word. Father, I just pray and ask, Heavenly Father, that it would be your name and your name alone that is exalted in these moments, Lord. Father, that you would just hide me behind your cross, Lord God, and that you would be magnified and made big. We love you and we thank you, Lord Jesus. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. Well, when I spoke with Dr. O'Donohue, when she invited me to uh, come a couple months ago, I asked her, I said, is there anything in particular that you would want me to talk about? And she said, well, no, I want you to just uh, talk about what the Lord leads you to talk about, and I believe he has. But she told me, she said, it is also March begins National Women's History Month, which I didn't even know such a thing existed. But March 1st kicks off the 30th year of National Women's History Month. So I did a little Google research and found out that in 1987, in a perpetual state, Congress declared March is National Women's History Month. A special presidential proclamation is issued every year which honors the extraordinary achievements of American women. And so I found out this year that the 2017 theme of National Women's History Month is business. So there's several women from across the nation, um, both living and posthumously, that have been nominated for this year's award. And as I read their bios and looked at them, I got to thinking about, you know, all these women are highlighted for their great achievements. But what about women that have achieved things that we never know about? Are their achievements any less significant? Are their achievements any less important because people did not know about them? And the woman that came to mind for me was my great-grandmother. My great-grandmother, both of my great-grandmothers on my dad's side, were born in 1900. Um, I was only privileged to know one of them, the one that I'm going to share with, a little, uh, tell you a little bit about this morning. My great-grandmother, Bess Allen, uh, she grew up Bess Hopkins. She was born in Missouri in 1900, and in 1903, she traveled with her family via covered wagon to Texas, and they had to make a couple stops along the way, one of those being in what is now known as Oklahoma, but at the time was considered Indian Territory because Oklahoma was not established as a state until 1907, and that's where her youngest sibling was born. 
My great-grandmother moved to Dallas with her family, and when she was 11, she had to be put into an orphanage because her dad had passed away and her mother could no longer care for her. So she grew up in a Methodist orphanage in Corsicana, Texas, which is just a little southeast of Dallas. She grew up there until she was 18. That's where she came to know the Lord. And when she graduated from high school, she moved out of the orphanage. She met my great-grandfather in Dallas. She went to business school, and she had three children, two daughters and a son, and the son was my late grandfather. And as I thought about my great-grandmother's life, this was a lady that was very dedicated to the Lord. When um, she and her husband and their family settled in the Oak Cliff area of Dallas, she became very active in their church, Elmwood United Methodist Church in the Oak Cliff uh, neighborhood of Dallas. And she served there until she was 91 as the preschool director. And you probably have never heard her name, Bess Allen, before, unless you grew up at Elmwood United Methodist Church or you're related to me. And if you're related to me, come find me. I'd love to meet you. Um, But her accomplishments were great because she was able to lead so many of those children to the Lord and tell them about Jesus. And as a small child, I remember her teaching me about Jesus. She taught me about the Lord, and when I would stay with her in the afternoons and in the summers when my parents were at work, she was discipling me and telling me Bible stories, alongside teaching me how to crochet, which I just made knots. I know how to crochet now, but I just made knots as she tried to teach me to sew and garden and do all of these things. But primarily what I remember her for is for her dedication to the Lord and the accomplishments that she had that others don't know about, yet they were so significant. She made her mark in her generation. And I think about the 100 years that she lived. She was born in October of 1900. She passed away in January of 2001. So she was 100 years old, two months, and uh, 17 days old when she passed away. I think about the things that happened in her lifetime. She lived through two world wars. She saw women get the vote. She saw airplanes. She saw uh, motor cars used. She saw um, a president assassinated. She saw a man walk on the moon. All of these various things, computers, cell phones, all these various things. But I still think her accomplishments and her achievements were greater than those because they are eternal. As I thought about that and started praying about this morning, the Lord reminded me of something that he taught me a couple years ago in Bible study um, from the parable of the talents. And so that's where we're going to park or start this morning is in Matthew 25 verses 14 through 30. And I think context is always king when we talk about scripture and look at passages of scripture. So I want to set the stage for this particular passage of scripture before we read it. In Matthew 24 verse 3 we're told that this is Jesus speaking to his disciples while they're on the Mount of Olives. And we see in Matthew 26, verses 1 and 2, that this is the Tuesday before the Passover, and it's the week of Jesus' crucifixion. So these are some of the last words that he is giving to his disciples. And the disciples have asked him when the things that he talks about in Matthew 23 are going to take place. That's when Jesus gives the eight woes. And um, he, they're asking, when are the signs of your coming going to happen? When is that going to happen? When is going to be the end of the age? In our passage today, Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, is kind of parked in the middle of all of that context, and it immediately follows the parable of the ten virgins. And here we see that Jesus is saying, be ready, but be working 
as in serving as you prepare for my return. So I want to go ahead and read Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. And it says this, and these are, this is the Lord talking. It says, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See what you have is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So let's look at this passage. So we see in verse 14 that the master owned these possessions and he entrusted them to his servants. And I've thought a lot about this word entrust. What does this really mean? So I looked it up in English and I looked it up in the original Greek and it means the same thing in both. Um, it really means to charge or to invest with a responsibility. So it wasn't just a matter that the master gave the talents to the servants. He said, you're responsible for these things. They were kind of on loan, if you will, because they were the masters and he was gonna come back and see what had been done with them. Um, the servants though, when they approach the master, they bring nothing on their own to him. Anything that they receive is something that he has given to him. And you know, I think we all know in parables, Jesus used these uh, types of stories to get a point of cross. And we know in the parable that God himself is the master and the servants are his disciples or his children. When we come to our heavenly father in his great grace, he gives us his possessions. We bring nothing at all on our own. Anything that we have has been given to us by our Heavenly Father. Any talent, any ability, any, anything at all in His great grace, He entrusts us with His possessions. We bring nothing at all. 
And I think that is so, as the older I've gotten, the more I've been mindful of that, that I bring nothing to the table. Anything at all that I have or anything that the Lord allows me to be a part of is by his great grace, and I am grateful for that. But he divides, the, the master divide the, uh, divides the talents out. So we see in verse 15 that he calls these three servants. To the first servant, he gives or he entrusts five talents. To the second servant, he entrusts two talents. And to the last servant, the third servant, he entrusts one talent. And I know for a long time, whenever I would read this parable, because I've heard it ever since I was a little kid, I always would think, gosh, that third servant, he really got gypped. You know, I mean, he didn't just get like two talents like the other one did. But it wasn't until I looked up like what a talent really was that I realized each one really received quite a bit because a talent in Jesus's time was worth 15 years worth of wages. So the servant that received the five talents received 75 years worth of wages. The servant that received two talents received 30 years worth of wages. And the servant that received the one talent received 15 years worth of wages. How many of you have ever worked 15 years in a row? It takes a long time to earn 15 years worth of wages, doesn't it? The more I work, the more I realize, like, that, that takes a long time. The Lord, the master, was very generous with these servants. It's really easy to look at this and think, gosh, that last one got gypped. But he was very generous with every one of the servants. Um, but he entrusted it to them. In the same manner that he entrusted it to them, he did so according to their abilities. He had given the abilities, or our Father, our Heavenly Father gives our abilities to us. And I think it is so neat to see God's great sovereignty in the things that he equips us with, that he gives to us, that he holds us responsible for. Um, because that's how it is with us, for each one of us in this room. Um, I'll just give an example of that. I remember when I first moved to North Carolina, the women's ministry with the state convention was very new. They'd never had a women's ministry before. And one of the things that our churches said was we need a manual of like what to do. And they said, can you do that? And I was like, I will try to figure it out because I've never written something like that before. And I remember sitting at my desk in November of 2009, I was at the Baptist building and I was writing and I had kind of sketched things out on a notepad and I had people that were gonna be editors for me to, you know, does this work, does this not? And as I was typing things out, it struck me how the Lord had orchestrated things for that particular moment. Because see, my undergrad degree is in journalism. My master's degree is in education, so teaching but my doctorate is in administration with an emphasis in women's ministry. I didn't orchestrate any of that, the Lord did. And it dawned on me as I was typing and putting this book together that was seeming to come naturally, if you will, but it was really supernaturally because the Lord had orchestrated everything, that the Lord had put all that together. And I was so overwhelmed by God's goodness and by his grace, I had to step away from my desk for an hour because I was like, only he could have planned that. I couldn't have done that at all. The Lord knew exactly what I would need in that moment. 
And that is true for each one of you in this room. There may, may be things that you're doing today that you're like, I will never, ever use this. It's sort of like, you know, Algebra 2 in high school where you're kind of like, I'll never use this. Those will be words that will come back to you because I had to use Algebra 2 last fall that I was like, quadratic equation, oh my gosh, I had to go find the math major on our floor. The Lord has a purpose and a plan for absolutely everything he has you engaged in, all the talents, all the abilities that he has given to you because he knows exactly where you will be serving and exactly what you will be doing. And when he tells us in his word, he will equip us. I can promise you that he does. But let's look at how these servants responded. We see in uh, Matthew 25, 16 through 18, what these servants did. In verse 16, we see that immediately the servant who received five talents went out and he put his talents to work and gained five more talents. And um, you may see the word traded that's there. And in the original Greek, it just really means worked. He went out, he had his five talents, he put them to work, he saw them multiplied to 10. In verse 17, we see that in the same manner, the servant who received the two talents gained two more, implying he got to work and he multiplied his to four. And in verse 18, we see the third servant who received the one talent, that 15 years worth of wages. He went out, he dug a hole, and he buried the talent. And in my mind, what I see is somebody digging a hole, put it in there, putting the uh, dirt back on it, and just sitting there, kind of like waiting. And that's always what I picture when I read that verse. But the master returns, and it says um, in verse 19, after a long time, the master comes back to settle accounts with the servants. And in verse 20, we see that the first servant approaches the master. And again, he'd been given those five talents. But notice the perspective of this first servant. He says to him, master, you entrusted five talents to me. Because even in that great length of time, this servant recognized what the master had given to him was not his to keep. He was to give it back to the master. In the same manner, anything that we do for Jesus is not for us. We lay it at the master's feet. It's not for us. It's for him and for his glory. We see the response of the master, this uh, very well-known passage of scripture in Matthew 25, 21. The master says to this first servant, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And as I was studying this a couple years ago and just reminded of it, I was struck for the first time that here, this servant who had received these 75 years worth of wages, those five talents, the master says to him, you are faithful with a few things. Because in our human perspective, it looks like he had a whole lot but in God's big perspective of all of his kingdom work, he had a few things that he was responsible for. And the Lord says to this servant, he says, you were faithful, meaning he was trustworthy. He was one who would execute the duties that he was given, and he did. We see immediately he went out and he used those talents and those gifts and he multiplied them. But the Lord tells him, I will put you in charge of many things now. Now we see that the second servant approaches the Lord and the master. And in verse 22, we see that the second service, servant also has the same perspective as the first servant. He says, you entrusted to me these two talents. They both recognized these are not our things to keep. We are bringing them back to you. 
But we see that the master gives the same response to the second servant that had four talents that he was laying before the master. He says to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. When I was studying this a couple years ago, it struck me for the first time ever that the master doesn't compare the outcome of the first servant with the second servant. He didn't say, second servant, I gave you two talents. How come you didn't um, multiply that to 10 talents the way the first servant did? And he didn't tell him anything except you did a good job with what I gave you. And in the same way, our heavenly father looks at us that way. He entrusts us with gifts and responsibilities that are individual according to what he has given us and where he has called us. And he doesn't compare us one with another. We compare one with another and wonder like, how come I don't get to do that that they get to do? Why do they get to do that? How come I can't do that? Or even I can't do anything because I'm not as a, um, I don't have as many talents as that individual. And yet that's not what God wants us to do. He doesn't compare us with one another. He looks at us individually because that's how he knows us. But we look at this third servant. In verses 24 and 25, the servant that received one talent that had buried that talent, he approaches the master with his original talent. And note what he says to the master. He doesn't say, you entrusted one talent to me or anything like that. This is what he says. He puts it back on the master. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, what you have is yours. But look at the response of the master. The master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have received the money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the 10 talents. You know, we look, I think, sometimes at this third servant, and we think, who would do that? But often we do that with the talents that God has given us. When we want to do what someone else has been called to do, we're not doing what God has called us to do and what he has equipped us to do. And I was trying to think of an analogy of this, and one came to mind. Um, it was two years ago tomorrow that my much-beloved grandmother had surgery in Dallas, and she was very healthy. She was a businesswoman. She worked the day before she went into surgery, and this was supposed to be a surgery to replace a heart valve. She had the surgery. It was successful, but after the surgery, she coded. She flatlined, and they had to resuscitate her, and for the next several hours in Dallas, they had to regulate her blood pressure because um, they couldn't get it stabilized. They had to send her back into surgery because she had a tear in her heart chamber. They fixed that. I got to Dallas um, and was able to be with her the remainder of the week, but she just wasn't breathing well. Unbeknownst to anybody at all, she had pulmonary fibrosis. Uh, which is scarring of the lungs and it's hardening of the lungs. Nobody knew this when she went into surgery. So she had to be put on a ventilator and she never came off the ventilator and passed away um, as a surprise to all of us 28 days later. And so her death has been very difficult on our family because it was just such a surprise. 
But my grandmother was an antique dealer, and my first job in high school and in college was working for my grandmother, and it was not a cushy job by any stretch of the imagination. I was not allowed to be late. I was considered late if I was 10 minutes, only 10 minutes early. I couldn't leave early. Lunches were 20 minutes. I mean, it was like, it was hard. Anyway, but my grandmother, as an antique dealer, she always had very fine things in her house that were part of her personal collection, and then, of course, she also had her antique shops. And one of the things that she had from the time I was a little kid was a type of china called chintz. It's a uh, English type of china, but it's very old and it is very decorative. And it looks like this. This particular pattern is called hazel, and this is what is called a tennis uh, server or tennis set. So when I talked with my family, they were like, what would you like to have for Mamaw's house? And I said, you know, I'd really like a piece of chintz china because it was special to me because I always identified it with my grandmother and it was just something that was hers. So my family wrapped it up and on one of my trips to Dallas, we bubble wrapped it like with like a whole roll of bubble wrap and it went in my hard shell carry-on suitcase that I pretty much was hugging in my seat. And it was very bittersweet because I'd give anything to have my grandmother back because I miss her. So it was bittersweet to be able to bring this uh, to my home here in Raleigh. The whole plane ride from Dallas here to Raleigh, I was thinking, all right, I'm gonna have peach tea and I'm gonna have a scone because I used to enjoy those things with my grandmother. So I remember when I you know, got my luggage off the plane, I got home, I opened it up and nothing was broken, which is always like great. I pulled it out and I stood frozen because I was like, what happens if I break this? If I break this, I won't get another one. This is valuable to me. It's very valuable because there's a lot of worth in it. So I took this and I put it in my china cabinet and it had been sitting there for a year and a half until I pulled it out the other day to wrap it up for this morning. Things that have value lose their worth when they are not used. In the same way, the talents and the gifts and the abilities that God has given each one of us individually lose their worth when we do not use them. And I've been scared to death I was going to break that all morning long. All right. I've thought a lot about um, serving the Lord and just serving the Lord without a name and nobody knowing, you know, what what we've done for the Lord. Because in the day and age that we live in with social media, everybody is like tweeting and putting out there like what they're doing and hashtagging and that kind of thing. And I've thought a lot about the early church and what that looked like because they didn't have social media to share, this is what I'm doing for Jesus. And I've thought a lot about, especially in Hebrews 11 and those that are listed in Hebrews 11. Anybody that knows me, knows me well, knows that the book of Hebrews is my favorite book of the Bible. And if you look, if you fast forward into Hebrews and you look in Hebrews 11, I'm sure we're all familiar with this passage of scripture. You see all these people that are listed and they're commended for their faith. You see Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and, you know, all of these people. But it is about verse 32 that the author of Hebrews, after he talks about Rahab, he gets to verse 32 and he says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me, because he's running out of time. 
of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy." wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. You know, these are people that had no names that are listed in scripture, yet they lived for the Lord and they lived faithfully for the Lord. What they did for the Lord was not any less because nobody knew about it than what we know from scripture or what we know of achievements of other people. It was just as important and just as significant. And it's following this passage of scripture where it always sticks out to me, they were sawn in two. You don't see a tweet about that or a hashtag that's like all for Jesus. You don't see that. These were people that went to the death for the Lord, lived by faith. But it's following this in Hebrews 12, one through two, it says this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and had sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. One of the things that I do in my spare time is run. And I uh, have run two half marathons. I've run one marathon and more 5Ks than I remember running now and one 10K. And I remember when I ran my first marathon um, back in December of 2015, seven weeks before this marathon was to run in Dallas, I always run in my hometown. Seven weeks before this marathon, I was supposed to run in Dallas. I ran um, my longest long run, which was 18 miles. It was at the end of October 2015. And it was two weeks later that I was going to run my next long run, which was going to be 20 miles. And it was a Sunday afternoon in Cary, and I was uh, running down Walnut Street. I was running down a hill, and I'd been having some ankle issues. And I remember my ankle gave way at mile 13 and a half, and I went down in the middle of the sidewalk on a rainy, cold day like I'd been shot. And I remember I got up, and I was like, I am two miles from home. There wasn't anybody to call, and so like I hobbled home, and I just felt frostbite had set in. So I called my dad, and he was like, you're going to have to stay off that ankle if you're going to run in the marathon. I was like, this is not good because I have not run further than 18 miles. So the morning of the marathon, having not really trained the way you're supposed to in an ideal, perfect marathon way, I took my little running belt, and I packed it with snacks. And so... Uh, for those of you that are not aware of like the running world, um, there's not carrots or anything like that in here. There are these energy blocks that are pretty much pure sugar. They're carbs that you can eat uh, quickly that are digestible. And ideally in a race, you eat like three at nine miles and you eat another three at 18 miles. And then you know, you're able to just scurry on along the course. 
Well, that morning, because I was so worried about I'm going to get hungry and, you know, all this other stuff, I packed my little running belt with six sleeves of these things. And they're lightweight. I mean, it's not like it's a, you know, a chocolate bar with nuts in it. They're pretty lightweight. But I had several of them in this running belt just because I didn't know what was going to happen. And I didn't know if at mile 18, it was just going to be like my legs were like, and we're done. You didn't run any further, and this is your punishment now. Um, but I, I packed this little running belt, and I remember at mile 10, because I always put the running belt on with the, uh, the pouch itself facing my back. By mile 10, I was like, this thing feels kind of heavy. I don't know that I can carry this for 16 more miles. And by mile 17, it was so heavy that it was somewhat like pressing me down into the ground. I know that sounds weird, but as a runner, you want to be light on your feet. And so I felt like I was being pressed into the ground, and this felt like a boulder. Now, logic would tell you, just take it off and throw it away. However, a tightwad would tell you that the running belt itself was $25, and each one of these little packs of sleeves is $3, so I had $40 running in my hand, and I don't usually just toss that out the window. So I was like, all right. So I took it off, and I started to run with it in this hand, and then I moved, and I'd run with it in this hand, and this went on for the next eight miles. So by the time I passed mile 25, I was like, good grief. It was so incredibly heavy. And if you're familiar with the Dallas uh, skyline, there is a building in the Dallas skyline that is called Reunion Tower. It's also called the ball. It's the one that looks like a microphone, if you will. And the start-finish line of the Dallas Marathon is right in front of Reunion Tower. So I was running back towards downtown. I could see Reunion Tower, and I remember thinking, okay, I have 1.2 miles left to go. And I was gazing at the skyline, and my eyes hit the gaze on the street. And I could see about 300 yards in front of me. There was this man in street clothes. He was in a leather jacket. And I remember it was really cold that morning. He was running and he'd stop and he'd turn around and he'd take pictures and he'd take off running again. And the closer I got, the real, the, I realized that was my dad. And he was taking pictures of me. He and my mom had been tracking me on the app. So they knew like I was coming, you know? So I'd see my dad and I'm running cause I'm like, I'm getting rid of this. So I see them. And when I get close enough to see them, I'm still like a distance away. And we have this shot by shot. I mean, it's hilarious. I didn't put it on the PowerPoint this morning. But I see them and I like raise my arm up and do like this. So they see like this is about to be thrown at you. And I do like this. And I don't think they ever saw this in my hand because my mom was like, hey. And I was like, no. So I took this and I tossed it to them better than that. And I just remember like taking off running down the street, but seeing my dad like running after this belt that's like bouncing along the street. But I remember it was right after I passed them that I could see the finish line. And I no longer had this thing that I was moving back and forth and trying to juggle that had become a distraction. But I just saw the finish line and was able to just enjoy the moment of running the race and finishing and seeing that finish line. You know, you think about it. When we are jealous, when we are envious, when we are fearful, when we are prideful, when we have ego or arrogance, those things weigh us down because we're not able to focus on Jesus when we take off that sin that so easily weighs us down, it's an encumbrance, it entangles us like a web would do, it's hard to focus on Christ. 
So I wanna encourage you this morning, focus on Christ and leave you with this because I am like one minute over time. Three final thoughts. First, make your mark where you are. Run your race. Don't try to run somebody else's, run your race. Remember God has entrusted you with his talents based on the abilities that he has given you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. He has given you talents and abilities that are unique to you. Use them for his glory. And finally, God doesn't compare your kingdom work to others. You shouldn't either. He looks at you and you alone. You run your race by grace and grace alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you would even desire to use us in your kingdom work, Lord God. Father, you desire to use us, Heavenly Father, so that one day every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every peoples is around your throne declaring, worthy is the lamb that is slain. Father, help each one of us to run our races for your glory and your glory alone. Find us faithful, Lord God. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.